it is a, a particular issue between the United States and Canada. Um, I, th I think Bernie Sanders just walked into the room. Um, we're talking about <laughs> millionaires, 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 and billionaires. Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, the I.L. Ososki, broadcasting to you for the last time uh, from the old continent before I depart for fairer shores. And I'm um, joined on the line, as always, by my trusty colleague, uh, someone who is always there when you need that sharp hit, when you need that good opinion, Mr. David Clement. David, how goes it? Well, it's going well. It's going well. No complaints. Um, just riding through another lockdown, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yet another one. Uh, we did get an announcement here in Austria. This just uh, occurred, I think, earlier this morning that they are uh, apparently easing lockdown measures beginning on May 2nd. So literally two days after I leave, uh, they will open up the country again. <laughs> I mean, that's good news. That's good news. We got um, We got some good news from... Uh, from Canada's public health official, Teresa Tam, she basically said that um, it is likely that Canada will start to repeal its um, its uh, public health measures as soon as we get to 70% of the population with one dose. And oh, that's 20, good then. And 20% of the population um, with two doses. Uh, now, we're nowhere near that right now, but it's nice to have some concrete expectations. Yeah, some good um, numbers, a, an actual goal to reach. And here's yeah. another thing I was thinking about, David, because I saw this, uh, someone else mentioned it. You, let's say you have 40% uh, of your population, and I think the United States is something like around 50% first dose. Do you count, I mean, should you not technically count the people who've had it and recovered and have active antibodies? I guess it's technically question. you kind of yeah. should, right? I mean, you should probably count them with like a three month rolling window. Um, that's probably what I would say would be like the safe bet um, because you can't count them forever, right? We know that that, that eventually, or we assume, um, most of the virologists or epidemiologists are assuming that the natural um, immunity derived from once you've already had COVID does start to wane at a certain point. So there would be a point in time where you'd have to not count those cases. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could include that if you could, if you could say how many, how many million Americans or how, whatever the number is uh, of Americans had COVID in the last, had an active case in the last three months, take that number plus the amount of people who have one dose. And that gives you a general ballpark of immunity. Uh, and I believe there was a Wall Street Journal article maybe a month or so ago saying that with that type of analysis or approach, you actually get closer to herd immunity quicker. Uh, now, the big issue is, and it really is like a big dis misinformation uh, or, or disinformation campaign, depending on who you're listening to, is the idea that if you've already had COVID, you, it's not advantageous to get the vaccine. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that is certainly true in a very narrow time window. Um, but because you know that we know that that immunity naturally does wane, it is in your best interest, uh, at least my, my non-medical opinion, it's in your best interest to continue to pursue getting the vaccine because you're going to want that, um, that continued immunity down the road once your immunity from having the virus goes away. Yeah, and I think there have been multiple cases of people you know, getting it twice or three times, uh, even spaced out. So I think, yeah, it speaks to that. Uh, yeah, so definitely vaccines are top of mind. Uh, we'll definitely get into that as well with our guest on the program. Uh, David, you want to do a little intro of, of who we'll have in uh, segment number two? Yes, we have the Honorable Tony Clement joining the program. Uh, he has served uh, in various levels uh, of government in, in various cabinets. Cabinets. Uh, he's... Um, He's now a, a media man himself with his own television show, um, one in which that I've had the pleasure of appearing on. So we get to chat with him about one of his new projects, uh, Reshoring Canada. Uh, it's a great interview, so stay tuned for that. That'll be coming to you in, uh, in just about 10 minutes time after the break. But um, yeah, great guest. And, and it's always nice to have someone, I mean, you and I gripe about politicians quite a bit so it's nice to have someone who's actually been in the room before um uh on on the line with us someone who's been in the room where it happens yes and yeah. uh, you can you can go back and listen to some of our other interviews that we've done with uh, various members of parliament uh state senator we're trying to get a lot more politicians on to hold them to account to get uh, an understanding of the different bills they're introducing former politicians who've now seen the light. <laughs> you can see all of those on consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, you guys stay tuned. That'll be in segment number two. For the first block, though, David, I had uh, an article that was thrown up on our website, uh, consumerchoicecenter.org, that I wanted to discuss. I think it's very important in the context of what's happening in the global south, uh, meaning uh, those south of the equator. Uh, we are seeing huge spikes in the number of cases caseloads and deaths uh, in countries particularly like India, and the argument is coming back into the cycle that what needs to be done is we need to take all of the vaccines that are currently out there and being distributed in multiple countries around the world, and we need to seize the technology, the patents, the IP behind those so that these countries can actually produce them and inoculate their populations. Uh, So the article I'm mentioning Mm -hmm. is talking about this. This is um, at the World Trade Organization, a motion put forth by India, South Africa, and uh, actually up to 100 other countries. And they're applying for something called a TRIPS waiver, a trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. Essentially, they're just looking for a ruling by the World Trade Organization that would nullify uh, intellectual property protections on COVID vaccines. And why is that problematic? Well, instead of going into why it's problematic, uh, I'll give you two points, David, that I think could be really interesting. Number one is you already have Moderna, which is like one of the uh, one of the first vaccines that was approved in most countries, um, particularly in uh, liberal democracies in the West. Uh, That was they have actually pledged to release their IP and they say it's available to anyone who wants it. Uh, Anyone who would like to use the Moderna vaccine, uh, all of their plans and their formulas are free to do so. They're free to produce it in their own sites. 
And uh, as long as it's in line with the regulation of the relevant health authorities, that's fine. And then the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is sold completely at cost, zero profit. Uh, so it's actually a fairly low uh, price tag uh, for many developing countries. I think that's very important. Um, so that's sort of your two good news. However, this TRIPS waiver would make it so that all of the vaccines, the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, uh, the AstraZeneca, the Moderna, the Johnson & Johnson, um, the Chinese one, the Russian one, Sputnik, all of them would no longer be allowed to enforce intellectual property protections. Mm -hmm. so what do you What do you think of that? Uh, just on the outright. Well, I mean, it's probably I, I I share your opinion, and it's probably one of our least popular opinions that we have, and we know that because Bill Gates was recently asked about this trips waiver, and he said, uh, "Yeah, I don't think that we should actually get rid of the intellectual property rights on these vaccines." And Twitter went mad as if Bill Gates is some evil genius, um, which of course he's not evil. Um, and it was it, it it's a very lazy uh, prospective solution to the problem of getting the developing world vaccines. And I say that because it completely ignores the devastating impact that this waiver would have on future. Uh, future innovative or access to innovative drugs in future research and development. And I know that like it's it's fashionable these days to really want to stick it to big pharma. But at the same time, like you are you're in a game of chicken um, and it's a really dangerous one because if you re remove those legal certainties, you remove the bedrock of what is the research and development and innovative drug process. And I mean, if COVID has shown us anything, it's that that bedrock or that certainty is valuable because it can allow companies to essentially do the unthinkable in rapid time. There's no way that any of these companies would have been able to create those vaccines, nor would they have had the same urgency to create those vaccines if they knew that they were going to have the intellectual property stripped from them regardless. Yeah. And the organizations that I mentioned, and the, the title of the article is The Global Organizations and Populists Who Aim to Seize COVID Vaccine Tech and IP. Um, the groups that have joined this petition are Doctors Without Borders, Human Rights Watch, and even the World Health Organization that we've probably mentioned too many times on this program. Uh, but what I find sort of pr more problematic about this is just as you mentioned, David, is mo many of these firms and companies, you know, they spend billions of dollars on research. And according to the CEO of Pfizer, the total cost of researching and producing their vaccine is about a billion dollars, right? In order to recoup that, you have to know that you're going to be able to charge a price and get some kind of profit at some point. Everybody's got to have their bills paid. That's one thing. And the second one is many of these companies are startups. I mean, BioNTech, so they actually are the German company. Uh, they're headed by the husband and wife team. They're originally um, German-born Turks. They partnered with Pfizer to do all the trials and the distribution. They were actually in the business of doing mRNA vaccines for cancer. And that's what they've been trying to do for years. Uh, they actually had huge amounts of debt. Uh, they were actually scrambling to find funding. 
they saw the COVID uh, pandemic happening and decided to use their technology and pivot. And now uh, their vaccine has been, you know, plucked into the arms of something like 300 million people. They have billions of dollars of sales to governments, millions in private investment. And with that, I think they're going to be one of the companies at the forefront of actually developing some type of vaccine against cancer. Now, that's an amazing thing. Would that exist if you didn't have intellectual property protections? I don't think so. No, and, no, and it the, definitely wouldn't. And the second point, very quick, is the idea that you just hand over the IP, you know, you send over a zip file to the, the health minister of India. Does that mean that he can take that and go, go down the street to a factory and they can just like, you know, plug it in and make this right away? No, you need to have that infrastructure. You need to have that specialized knowledge. I mean, most of these vaccines have to be in super cold freezers that are actually very expensive to hold. It's like a very particular process. I, I just don't understand the impulse. I mean, I understand the impulse. The impulse is um, screw all the companies, right? But at the end of the day, they've provided us value. We're out of this pandemic. All the projections where we wouldn't get a vaccine for another eight years. I mean... Do you remember that New York Times article? Do you remember that New York Times article that said it wouldn't be till like 2033? Yes. (laughs) That we wouldn't get a vaccine till 2033. And yet here we are with a handful of very safe, highly effective vaccines produced in record time, um, all because there was some certainty in those productions. So, yeah, I mean, it's a weird niche topic for us to talk about, but it is super important if you care about access to new medicine moving forward. I mean, you mentioned the mRNA technology and how that could be used to fight various forms of cancer. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to highlight that excitement. Um, and and it's it, it would be a shame if we kind of threw all of that away with this very knee-jerk response to IP. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the rhetoric. Um, that's why I use the phrase populist. It's the rhetoric of, you know, this is the rich countries versus the poor countries. Well, I mean, the rich countries have, have you know, paid for these or they've invested in some, yes. Uh, but at the same time, the AstraZeneca is being sold at cost to many of these countries. You can say India is a poor country all day long, uh, but that's not true. They're a huge country. They do have a good amount of money. They have a lot of innovation. Uh, they definitely have improved in the last 20 years. Um, the, why should they somehow have this deal to where, uh, what, Western companies, Western taxpayers have to just subsidize the rest of the world? That's kind of a status quo that we don't talk about enough uh, when it comes to drug prices. And it is a, a particular issue between the United States and Canada. Um, I think Bernie Sanders just walked into the room. Um, <laughs> where it's about, you know, why why do Americans pay one type of drug or why do Canadians pay another uh, price for a drug? There's a lot of this that's coming out and uh, hopefully we'll we'll be able to have more guests on to discuss it. Uh, but uh, that does it for this block. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on the Big Talker FM and Saga 960. Uh, it is with pleasure that I get to introduce uh, our next guest, uh, Tony Clement was formerly the member of parliament for Perry Sound, Muskoka. He served as a cabinet minister federally under Stephen Harper and as a cabinet minister provincially under 
Premier Mike Harris and Ernie Eves. He also happens to be the co-chair of a new organization called Reshoring Canada, which is why we have him on the program today. Tony, thank you very much for joining us. It's certainly my pleasure. Thank you. Great. So, I mean, we'll jump right into it in terms of this new organization, Reshoring Canada. Can you explain to our listeners what Reshoring Canada seeks to achieve and, and what its goals are? Sure, and I'd encourage uh, listeners to uh, check us out at uh, reshoringcanada.ca. Uh, but Reshoring Canada is uh, basically an advocacy and information sharing organization. And the idea is that uh, for it's become evident for years, but certainly the pandemic made it even more evident that uh, having supply chains that work properly is important for a number of different aspects of uh, our lives. Number one, security. Number two, uh, it, you know, for jobs and, and opportunity. And, uh, and certainly these kinds of things, uh, you know, can work properly, but sometimes they don't. We had a, a personal protective equipment shortage uh, at the start of the pandemic uh, because the supply chain wasn't working for Canada. Uh, and, uh, and so what was the response of government? It was to encourage more domestically produced PPE products. Now we're, we're at the back end of COVID. And of course, uh, Canada was one of those countries that did not have uh, locally supplied and produced uh, manufactured vaccine. Well, clearly that's an, an issue that is uh, impacting Canadians' health and safety. I look at uh, critical minerals or rare earth elements uh, those uh, particular mining products uh, help us produce fighter jets, but they also help us produce uh, electric vehicles and solar panels. If you want to have a green industry uh, in Canada or the United States for that matter, uh, you got to have the supply chain that matches that aspiration. Right now, that supply chain is controlled by China. So uh, when, you, when you look at it from a security point of view, from a safety point of view, from a jobs point of view, I'm not saying everything has to be produced locally, that, that would be absurd, but I think certain aspects of the supply chain have to be looked at again for greater resiliency, and that's what our organization is advocating. And uh, one aspect of this is that you're obviously uh, trying to reach out to many corporate leaders across Canada, uh, sort of making the case for them. Uh, but if your audience is, let's say, those who, who might be there in uh, the federal parliament, what are the kind of uh, policy steps they could take to help ensure that there would be a better and stronger domestic supply chain? Uh, very important question. And let me, uh, let me stress right from the outset that this is a uh, nonpartisan activity. I happen to have been a conservative, but my co-chair, Sandra Pupatello, was a, a liberal cabinet minister, liberal trade minister under Premier Dalton McGuinty of Ontario. Uh, so this, this is definitely ecumenical that way. I want to make that point straight you know, from the outset. But uh, yeah, we do have two audiences. We have the corporate sector, absolutely. We are already working with uh, various groups to obtain the information that you're, you're talking about. Like we we want to have those answers as well. But before you get those answers, we got to ask the questions. So we're right in the midst of uh, doing a, a, a broad survey with and in conjunction with various uh, corporate groupings, the Ontario Mining Association. Uh, the oil and gas sector, the manufacturing sector, 
life sciences. These are all uh, you know, particular industries. Aerospace is another one uh, where we're gonna uh, survey the membership uh, of those various sectors, find out what the state of supply chains are right now and what they think are you know, strengths and weaknesses of that, what, uh, what they would like to see in the future to better secure uh, a, a domestic supply chain. So uh, at that point, we'll be able to share our results, not only with the uh, corporate and public sector, but with political decision makers as well. So far, we've had really positive reaction. Uh, Vic, Vic Fideli, who's the Ontario Trade Minister, endorsed our initiative. Uh, we've been having discussions with uh, Minister Champagne, uh, who is the Global Affairs Minister in Canada. So th this is a hot topic. Uh, and, uh, and there's no question that uh, as we discovered, as soon as we launched and announced, there was a whole lot of interest. People, corporate sector, the public, uh, politicians are all saying, wow, it's about time somebody was doing this. And so we definitely hit a sweet spot there. And um, since we're also uh, broadcasting in North Carolina, uh, Apple just announced um, or that they're going to have a brand new center there in North Carolina. A lot of people are going to be moving there. There's going to be a huge demand for things like lumber. And we're seeing a huge lumber crisis. Obviously, much of that comes from Canada. Uh, to what extent is the conversation going to take place also with American business leaders and political leaders? And do you see this more as a sort of North American initiative uh, based solely in Canada? What extent will, can, uh, will American partners be involved in this? Uh, they will be. I've already had extensive discussions with a gentleman by the name of Harry Moser, who is the uh, chair of the Reshoring Institute, which is kind of our counterpart in the US of A. Uh, and uh, so he's very excited about uh, what we're doing. He's endorsed our, our initiative. We've also had uh, already in the, in the first few days after announcing this, we've had discussions with uh, various representatives of the provinces in the US of A. So for instance, Catherine Lubier, who is the agent general for Quebec in New York City, is very interested in what we're doing. Uh, Ian Todd and Earl Provo, uh, who are agents uh, general in um, Washington, D.C. and Chicago, Illinois, respectively, uh, have also contacted us and want to, want to be part of what we're doing. So this is not, uh, you know, uh, look, uh, this is not saying, again, let me stress, this is not saying that a proper supply chain is everything is produced in Canada. It, it is saying, let's look at our supply chain. How can we advance uh, our own safety, security, jobs? And that's a very North American, or at least a Canada, Canada US wide uh, discussion. And, and that's certainly how uh, these various representatives are seeing it as well. And, and so on that note, where is that line? How do we, how do we discern from a reshoring initiative and what I would describe as like traditional protectionist arguments. I mean, I, I fall into the free trader side of things. Um, so this is quite interesting to me, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested to hear your viewpoint on what the difference is between reshoring for let's say uh, critical industries and how we prevent that from kind of falling into the camp of being protectionist or restrictionist. Right. And I think a part of the answer is, uh, uh, you know, where you stand depends on where you're sitting. So if you're a government, uh, you should be concerned about things that are health and safety related or national security related. And so certainly our discussions on PPE and our discussions on critical minerals or rare earth elements, whatever you want to call it, those fall into that category. 
In terms of general manufacturing, I think that's less so the case, but uh, we believe that, uh, and we have seen evidence of this, and certainly Harry Moser in the US has seen evidence of this, that you know, the supply chains that manufacturers are using are being reconsidered. And they're being reconsidered, I think in a very smart way, a very sophisticated way. It's not like China produces something at a buck an hour, uh, if we did that in, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, or Mississauga, Ontario, that would be, that would be 15 bucks an hour. So buck an hour versus 15 bucks, uh, you know, therefore we're in China. Uh, what, what Moser has come up with is a total cost of operation calculation. And that looks at things, not just on the price per unit because of labor costs, but looks at the whole supply chain. And when, when corporations look at the whole supply chain and the resiliency of that supply chain and access to that supply chain in times of crisis, there may be another calculation. And I, and I don't think government is involved in that. I think that quite frankly, that's a, a business decision uh, of each business and an industry decision. So that's, uh, that's how I would uh, answer your question. Part of it is business, part of it is national security and safety. Uh, there are different discussions, but they may come up with the same conclusion. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. We're speaking with the Honorable Tony Clement, a former Canadian Member of Parliament. And uh, you can visit this new initiative, reshoringcanada.ca. Uh, so very central to this, obviously, is um, I, I would say the the large elephant in the room, and that is of vaccine production and supplies and uh, everything that's happening right now in Canada. Uh, what is your, your opinion? Uh, we don't have to get political here, but what is your opinion on uh, sort of how the, the vaccine procurement process has worked out in Canada, distribution, and uh, how the, the Trudeau government has, uh, has really taken care of this? Well, it hasn't worked out very well, has it? I think everybody can come to that. I think everybody's come to that conclusion except Justin Trudeau. Uh, but uh, the, the fact of the matter is they made a, they, they didn't have domestic vaccine capacity for COVID-19 vaccine. There is domestic capacity for flu vaccine in Canada. So uh, whenever a government official says, well, we lost our domestic vaccine capacity in the Mulroney years, 30 years ago, it's actually not true. Uh, but we, we did not, we were not a center for vaccine production using you know, mRNA technology for this type of uh, vaccine. Uh, so, uh, Many other countries are in the same spot. Israel was in the same spot. Uh, Israel, uh, you know, Netanyahu uh, of Israel got on the phone to Pfizer right away and, and uh, you know, paid a premium, paid a premium, got, you know, uh, secured access for his entire country. Uh, Canada, unfortunately, uh, decided that their, their vaccine um, production and distribution was going to be co-partnered with China. And then, you know, Two months later, China said, too bad, so sad, you're, you're kicked to the curb, Canada. So that was a big mistake. And so it put us behind a bunch of other countries trying to secure uh, you know, a, a, a product that everybody wanted. And so we're, we're a couple of months behind everybody else, at least a couple of months behind. Uh, and so that's impacting on our third wave and impacting on people getting COVID and so on. So it's, I think the lesson obviously is we need domestic vaccine capacity, uh, not just for flu vaccines, but for other vaccines in Canada. And uh, I, I think uh, most governments have realized that and that there will be a long-term or medium-term fix to that. 
uh, once this crisis is over. On, on the Ken Sino deal, uh, I, I love your input here because from an outsider's perspective, I'm just left scratching my head as to why that would be the priority deal from day one, given the geopolitical concerns, the ongoing tensions between our government and theirs. What is there, was there any justification to go that route or, or what was the Trudeau government thinking in terms of partnering with, I mean, a government that can only be described as adversarial. Um, so it's not a complete shock that that they kicked us to the curb, um, which really begs the question of why we went that route to begin with. Well, I, they probably just listened to the Chinese rhetoric, which is very different from Chinese action, right? So the Chinese rhetoric was, we're, we're here in par, as part of the global community. We want to help. Uh, we, we, we're part of the solution. Look at us. We know how to deal with COVID. And the reality is uh, they, they have their own geopolitical agenda, which um, is contrary to Canada's values and interests. So uh, unfortunately, the Trudeau government learned the lesson the hard way, and uh, it severely impacted our uh, plans for vaccine. We have about a, a minute here um, before we wrap up. Do you think that this is going to be one of the pressing issues of the next election, or do you think that it will be something that kind of falls to the wayside. I don't think it'll be pressing simply because there's uh, a consensus. Uh, I, th I think liberals, conservatives, uh, you know, even uh, new Democrats would say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> we for our own health and safety, we've got to we've got to reconsider our supply chains." So the issue is, what do we do about it? And uh, you know, where do we look? And we're we're going to be providing that kind of information and that kind of dialogue in the political process. So we're not hitching our wagon to liberals, conservatives, NDP, whatever, uh, green. Uh, we're saying, hey, we, we want to be part of the solution. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing. Fantastic. Well, well, Tony, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we will certainly have to have you back on the program uh, to talk about how this develops um, and what the progress is. Um, so yeah, thank you again. And uh, we'll, we'll chat with you soon. For sure. Looking forward to it. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on the Big Talker FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and Saga 960 AM uh, in the Peel region of Ontario. Uh, Yael, great guest, uh, great interview with Tony. Um, it should be noted that we are not actually related. We share the same last name, but we are not related. Uh, it's funny because I've had several instances where people have thought that he was my dad. Um, which he is uh, not, <laughs> oh, my but uh, yeah, good to have him on the show. Uh, an interesting concept, the whole reshoring um, initiative. It'll be interesting to see where this goes in terms of those uh, vital industries. And uh, I, I'm a, a little worried, a little worried that it could be hijacked by protectionists to, defend domestic industry um, in areas that are not in that kind of vital uh, space. But uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll wait and see. And it's, it's definitely an important topic. And we didn't even really get into the actual pernicious nature of uh, particularly China and the Chinese Communist Party. 
Um, there are a lot of changes in supply chains to countries like Indonesia and Vietnam. And that is, I guess, somewhat better because, you know, they're not totalitarian socialist governments. They're still pretty socialist governments, if you ask me. But um, that's something that is not really discussed as well. And it even relates to the the first topic we, we talked about earlier in the show related to um, intellectual property and, you know, a lot of these supply chains. Because if you are a Canadian company, American company, and you want to sell your bicycles in China, uh, you go there and uh, you go to the factory, you know, you meet the guy, you sit down, you show him the plans, and uh, you're like, okay, I want to, you know, manufacture 100,000 of these bicycles for export. It's like, okay, great. Just, uh, you know, give us your intellectual property, give us uh, the specific diagrams, give us, you know, the tools, give us all that stuff. Um, we'll start a new company where we're 50-50 shareholders here in China. Yeah. We'll have that tech, and uh, basically we're good to go. Then you sign it, and then six months later, you start to see copycat bikes that have the exact same IP uh, that are coming out of China for half the cost. And that's exactly what has been happening in this. So it is about resilience. It is about you know being able to have good supply chains, but it's also making sure that the IP protections are actually protected and actually are enforced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You see a lot of this um, get stripped, um, in, in the business process. So it's, I mean, it's a big problem. There've been some major Canadian firms, um, that have, uh, although it's, it's not a hundred percent confirmed, but it has been alleged that their fall or downfall, uh, was a result of, uh, something along the lines of what you just described where, uh, intellectual property was stolen. Um, I've had, uh, uh, the reason I, I even know more about that is, um, I actually heard stories from my family. So my, my family owns a small business in, uh, rural Quebec and, uh, they sell all types of electronic components and parts and they do stuff with electric vehicles. And basically they wanted to get something done in China. And, uh, my grandfather, uh, at the time went over there, they had a meeting and they were told the terms of what they had to do. They had to sign this over, start a new company in China uh, in which they would basically not have controlling interest. And basically he saw the writing on the wall and he said, uh-uh, no, monsieur. And uh, he got out of there and uh, he did not do it. And, and now they are using um, you know, domestic supply chains throughout Canada and the United States. But man, it just goes to show there's a lot of this we don't think about. And if you're a consumer at the end of the day, uh, for you, it's not necessarily going to matter, you know, obviously everyone has seen these things on Amazon, you know, some copycat Chinese uh, AirPods come up or something. Uh, but the second you put them in your ear and you try to connect it, you can tell the quality ain't there. <laughs> you you can tell this is not delivering the value that the Apple commercials show. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's hard sometimes to make that argument. And you mentioned that earlier, David, it's, it's hard for, for us to make that argument for consumers because most people don't think about that. And it is a very niche uh, policy topic, but very happy mm -hmm. we got to discuss it. I love the uh, the supply chain stuff. The more and more that uh, I'm learning about it, and it's actually a degree that you can get in university. I've learned supply chain yep. uh, management and logistics. Yes, it's pretty cool. Yes, not not to be confused with supply management, which is our ridiculous system of quotas and tariffs for dairy products in Canada. Yes, very, very, very different. Uh, that is true. I just had to get that in there. Just I mean, had to, just had a, to needle it. Yeah, not a day goes by that I don't think about how much I have just a deep-seated hatred for 
those crony lobbyists who inflate the prices of milk and chicken and turkey. But yeah, big lactose uh, guy here, gents. On to something a little more positive. Your favorite product, hard seltzer, is absolutely blowing up right now. Yes. it is absolutely blowing up right now. I'm just going to run through some of the the, the headlines here because it's fantastic. So, uh, so the four billion dollars worth of hard seltzer was sold in the United States in 2020. The global market for hard seltzers expected to grow to 14.5 billion dollars by 2027. Holy be. Diageo is in on seltzers. Jose Cuervo is in on seltzers. Uh, you have um, Coca Cola, Bud Light. Coca Cola, Bud Light, Labatt. Um, you also have uh, Pernod uh, Ricard uh, joining the hard seltzer market. Oh, in that's May. huge. Yeah. So it really is like something that everybody is doing. Um, and I, it's just such an, so it's, it's still a relatively new product in terms of like consumer awareness, but it's so good. And it really is like, it's such a, a testament to how innovation, like just responding to what consumers want. So consumers want something that is like fruity and tasty. That seems to be like in the market these days, but they're also more calorie conscious than ever before. And these hard seltzers do a very nice job of threading the needle um, between those two things. And you have a drink that hydrates you as you drink alcohol that is fruity and delicious and packs a punch. And there are multiple flavors. I mean, uh, we, we don't have to create the parallel there with the vape flavors, but it is true. You have multiple flavors that are delicious that are great. Uh, this, these things are becoming cheaper. There are better products, better varieties. I've seen a couple of YouTube channels where people compare them. You know, they have 10 of them on the table. It's like, what kind yeah. of job does this guy have? <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. Uh, but that kind of stuff is, is great to see. And, you know, it's a lot of these things that are upending many, many years of tradition. And oh, yeah. I would love to see something like that break into Europe because, uh, you know, Germany is a country of beer drinkers. And Spain is a country of wine drinkers. You know, is there a way that you can have products that go in and shake up the culture? I mean, uh, I think North America, U.S. and Canada, they both have a fair amount of all of those cultures, but they definitely have that, you know, frat sorority culture of uh, light beers uh, that people guzzle. You add that with the fruity flavors. Uh, it's just perfect. Perfect disruption uh, engine right there, the hard seltzer. And- and the funny thing is, is that you can even you can even have this disruption that like builds on whatever the predominant drinking culture is. So I know that Jose Cuervo's hard seltzer is like a tequila infused hard seltzer. I don't know exactly what that means, but they're kind of building on the drinking habits of of people in Mexico. So it's really just really cool to follow. Um, really cool to follow. So if any of you have any innovative ideas and would like to start a hard seltzer company with us, uh, call it the Consumer Choice Beverage, uh, write to us, hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Love to hear from you. <laughs> exactly. Um, others unrelated news to hard seltzer, uh, but I think you would probably argue that this is a positive development. It looks like Gavin Newsom may be on the ropes. Oh, poor boy. 
He's on the ropes for those who haven't listened to our program and us gripe about Gavin Newsom before the governor of California. Um, legitimately, legitimately one of the worst governors in the United States. And he is on the ropes because a recall initiative looks like it has enough support to uh, move forward in the process, whatever that looks like. Um, so exciting times for those who are not fans of Governor Newsom. And I think they got upwards of about 2 million signatures on a single ballot, uh, which is very, very impressive in California. And that has actually been through uh, the auditing process. So they did throw out signatures that didn't match or didn't have active addresses or weren't California residents or something. So yeah, this is a, it's a very big deal. And, you know, this is something that I find very interesting, particularly in California. You can't really do this in every state. Um, usually in, you know, a Canadian parliament context, you just have to, you know, vote the guy out or, you know, somehow the government falls and you can trigger an election. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is, uh, could this be the foretelling of the next celebrity governor of California? Because well, that's yeah, how we that's got the, Arnie. That's, well, and this is the other news is that Caitlyn Jenner is now kicking the tires, uh, at running for governor of California as a Republican, which really could, is could make just a couple making... could make a couple car jokes there, but I won't. But I like kicking yes, the tires. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Pardon the pun. I guess that's a that's a that's a very good one. Um, yeah, I mean, running as a Republican, Caitlin's always been a Republican. So I mean, it the the immersion of of Caitlyn Jenner as a uh, a viable political option for voters is like something that I'm certainly going to follow because if you follow this on Twitter at all, there's an absolute meltdown from groups on the left. Um, just could not fathom having Caitlyn Jenner as governor. Uh, what a better and, way to explode heads across the nation than to have yeah. a transgender Republican be the first, you know, big representative uh, in, in a gubernatorial, uh, gubernatorial position. Uh, and this is the thing, is that I don't really know her politics, so I may regret saying this at some point, but I'm kind of here for this. I like this. I, I'm down. I, you know what? I'm down for this. This is, this is cool. I like someone who, in her own words, I mean, she describes herself as very socially liberal and very fiscally conservative. Now, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but at first glance, that sounds a heck of a lot better than Gavin Newsom, I'll tell you that. And, and just to reiterate why Gavin Newsom is so bad, um, I mean, here's the governor who uh, essentially locked down his state while he was whining and dining at the French Laundry Restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, he's the one who is always ready and willing to pass a new tax, to ban a new product, uh, to ban vape flavors, uh, to try to ban Uber. You know, he is the anti-consumer choice governor. And he hates fun. He hates fun. Uh, he hates innovation. Hates um, definitely, I would say, an anti-millennial voice, too, uh, just because of all the debt he's racking up and the amount of money he's spending. And it is driving people out of the state of California. Uh, we saw the census numbers that came out for the United States this week. California will be losing, I think, one or two House seats. Uh, the state of North Carolina will gain one. Florida will be gaining one. Texas, I believe, has two. A couple yeah. other states. So people are leaving California in droves, and it's not just, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, some kind of slogan on a right wing website. It's actually now <laughs> measurable in the census, and it is because of oh, the yeah. terrible policies of Gavin Newsom, once the mayor of San Francisco, now the governor of California. He's tried to position himself as a potential, you know, presidential candidate. But if you got a recall on your CV, that don't look too good. No, no. Although I will say Scott Walker did manage to defeat a recall and then run for president unsuccessfully. Um, so maybe, maybe Newsom is thinking that he can be like Scott Walker, but uh, let's hope not. And let's hope <laughs> that he just... Let's hope that he just rides off into the sunset and goes to do whatever he thinks he can do in the private sector, which uh, I don't know what his background is. So I have no idea what that would look like, but he'd be, he'd be a lot less, uh, a lot less damaging in the private sector than he is the public. Yeah, that is true. We'll definitely be watching that. I mean, I love California for many reasons. Um, Definitely don't like their regulations, but I do like many of their popular mechanisms that they have. Uh, their propositions sometimes, <laughs> the the sun, the weather, uh, Hollywood, the food. Oh yeah, it's great. And oh yeah, maybe uh, David will plan a trip, get a studio, and have some hard seltzers in California. How does that sound? Ooh, that sounds good. That sounds uh, yeah, that sounds exactly like what I need right now. And I think the uh, same could be said for all the listeners. So uh, thank you guys for listening in. I uh, hope you can crack open a hard seltzer and uh, talk to you guys soon. Until next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
destroy through COVID-19. Hallelujah. Glory.